Father, as we come to this chapter in Revelation and we look at this uh, church in Pergamos and uh, Lord, how they had landed right on top of the headquarters of Satan himself. And yet they were doing your work, Lord, but uh, they were under attack. And Satan was uh, trying to bring this church down and trying to bring this great work down because it was at the heart of what you were doing in Asia. And so, Lord, we can learn a lot of lessons today about his strategies against the church, against each of us as individuals, uh, Lord, and we can learn how uh, uh, we can have victory even when we're under attack. Uh, Lord, so this is an important text. We can also learn today, Lord, that and what we already know, we know the end of the story that, Lord, Satan's going to win some battles, but you're going to win the war, and we know that, and we look forward to that day. Lord, we look here at the United States right now. We look in our own uh, homes and our own individual lives, and, and we recognize that, that Satan is coming against us and, and trying to uh, draw us away from you, trying to bring us down, trying to keep those who are not saved from being saved, Lord. There's a major attack going on in our country right now. We need to recognize that, Lord. And we can uh, learn a lot of lessons here in this little text in uh, Revelation. So I ask that you teach us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered have you ever, you know, I mean that's not something probably you think about on a daily basis but have you ever wondered where Satan is right this very moment now some people would say well he's right here in this church and he's going to try to disrupt what we're doing today I will say this every time you want to talk about Satan in any form or fashion you better buckle up because uh, he's going to try to stop uh, the truth about him from coming out and so you're going to have to listen really careful. He's going to try to put you to sleep today. And so I'm going to throw things at you if you go to sleep. So you better, so you better stay, stay away. You know, I think a lot of people actually believe that Satan can be anywhere at any time. Because I hear people say things like, uh, Satan made me do it. Like he just follows them around all day. That's really kind of an arrogant uh, view of yourself that you're so important that he follows you around all day. But... But some people believe that. Or you've heard people say, Satan gave me this illness. Or you've, I've heard people say, well, the reason I didn't make it to church was Satan broke my car down. So, so you hear all sorts of excuses, and we blame a lot of things on Satan. And, and when you say things like that, basically what you're saying is that Satan can be anywhere at any time. And what does that make him if that's so? That makes him omnipresent. He is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. And Satan is not God. Now, with that said, I personally believe that Satan can transport himself from one location to another very rapidly. But still, he can't be uh, everywhere at once. But I will say this. At this very moment, Satan is headquartered in a specific location in this world. He has a literal throne, and he has a literal headquarters in a dimension that we can't see. And it would be fascinating to know exactly where he was headquartered at. Now, this is what's so fascinating about this text in chapter 2 of Revelation, because, in, it, because John is going to be told by Jesus today 
to write a letter to the church at Pergamos, and the church at Pergamos was actually sitting at Satan's headquarters. Satan had made his headquarters in Pergamos, in, in what we today is modern-day Turkey. And, and uh, you, you kind of wonder, I mean, why Pergamos? Well, Pergamos was the capital of Asia, Asia Minor at that time, and it was the seat of uh, a lot of emperor worship, a lot of idol worship, and it was a great center for learning. In fact, it had a library, the second largest library in the world, only second to the great library in Alexandria. It had a library that had over 200,000 volumes of books, and so uh, it was a center of learning throughout the uh, world in that day. But hey, I got to tell you, Jesus wasn't impressed with their knowledge because you look at the very first verse that we're going to look at, verse number 12. Go with me there. In verse number 12, listen to what Jesus says to this church. And he tells John to write this down. He says in verse number 12, and to the angel at the church of Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, in every letter, we have seven letters to the seven churches, and in every letter, Jesus gives a description of himself. And you can take all of those seven descriptions, and you can come up with a pretty good idea of who Jesus is. Well, one of the descriptions that Jesus gives him of himself is that he is the one who has the, two, the sharp two-edged sword. Now, what's the sharp two-edged sword? It's the word of God. And the word of God trumps all the knowledge of man. Listen to what uh, the author of Hebrews says about the word of God over in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and of the joints of marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, when he's speaking of the word of God, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of this Bible that you're holding in your hand. And he says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and to the joints and the marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your heart and my heart. And so when you read the word of God, when you take the time to read this word, it is going to pierce your soul. And that's why so many people don't want to hear the word of God. There are a lot of Christians who don't want to open up this Bible because this Bible is not a feather that tickles your ears like a lot of people want. It is like a sword. It is like a two-edged sword that pierces into the very marrow of your soul. Now, what word does he have for them? He says, hey, here I am. I have this, I'm the one who has this sharp two-edged sword. And so he's going to use this sword to come at the church at Pergamos because there's some things wrong with this church but before he does that he's going to give them a commendation and, and listen to the commendation that he gives them he says i know your works verse number 13 of chapter 2 of revelation he says i know your works and where you dwell where satan's throne is wow here was pergamos this church in pergamos and they were dwelling in the actual location now they couldn't see it because he's in another dimension but they were dwelling in the actual place where Satan's throne was. Now, some expositors would say that Jesus was referring to the world because Satan's throne is, is, is the world. 
He has a throne in the world. And so you could say that about every church to some degree. But I think he was being much more specific here. He doesn't say that about any of the other churches. They were actually in the, living in the same place where Satan had his headquarters. And listen to what he, Jesus said. He says, and you've done well. You've held fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, the Christian faith, even in the days of which Antipas, probably the pastor of this church at Pergamos, was my faithful martyr. He died for his faith. Satan came in him and he killed him, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, so what's Jesus saying to this church? He said, you're in a very tough place. I mean, uh, so tough that it cost your pastor his life. But you've hung in there. You've remained true to my word. You've re remained true to my name. You've remained true to my faith. Even though you're located right in the very midst of Satan's headquarters. Now, man, that had to shock them. That had shocked John. So here was this little group of believers and more than likely they had gone to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And, on, and at the day of Pentecost, Peter preached that great sermon and they were speaking in tongues. They were speaking in everybody's language. They were speaking in the language of these people from Pergamos, this Asian language. And they could hear them and they knew that a miracle was taking place. And they got saved. And they went back to Pergamos and they back to their hometown in Pergamos. And they started a church, lo and behold, they started a church right on top of Satan's headquarters. Now, you talk about being on the front lines. They were on the front lines. Now, I bet you if you had asked John before Jesus gave him this word to write down, where was Satan's headquarters located? I think he would have said his headquarters are located in Rome. Because at that time, Rome was the seat of all the evil power in the world. Rome was the seat of paganism. Uh, it was the capital of paganism. Uh, it was from Rome that these orders to persecute the church had gone out. And, and so you would think maybe that Rome would have been the seat of Satan's power. But Jesus doesn't say that Satan's headquarters were in Rome. He says that they were in Pergamos. Well, why not Rome? I mean, why wouldn't he have his headquarters in Rome? That would seem the logical place. Let me tell you why. Because the battle had already been won in Rome. Rome was a dark, dark place with, with a lot of evil and wicked people, and they had given themselves over to Satan, and so Satan had won that battle. But all of a sudden, down in Jerusalem, Jesus had died on a cross and he had been resurrected from the dead. And at Pentecost, all of these people were saved and they had gone into Asia Minor. And at Asia Minor was where this great, I don't want to say, call it even a revival, but there was this great movement of the church and the church was on the rise and the church was growing very rapidly. And so Satan probably might have had his headquarters in Rome, moved them to Pergamos so he could stop this movement in its very tracks. Because at this time, Rome, the church of Rome had not grown and it wasn't a threat to him, but these churches in Asia Minor were a threat to him. So here he was in Pergamos and uh, uh, directing his demons in order to stop this advance of the church. Now, if you look at Pergamos historically and you take a closer look at that city in the day 
that uh, John wrote this letter, it makes some sense that Satan was there because it, the, what was going on in Pergamos really reeks of Satan. Just let me tell you just a few things. It was known for its four great temples. There was a temple to Caesar, and, and there was three Greek temples. There was a temple to Zeus, who was the god of power. There was a temple to Bacchus, who was the god of depravity. And there was a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. And these Greek gods, I mean, here was Caesar, who was, was uh, Satan's puppet he used to rule the world. And here were these three Greek gods who were Satan's creation. They were demonic gods. And people were duped into worshiping these gods. Some people actually call Pergamos the birthplace of medicine because of this temple of Asclepius that was there, this great temple. And next to this temple, there was a medical school. And uh, Hippocrates himself, supposedly the father of modern medicine, Hippocrates went to this medical school and studied. It was the Mayo Clinic of that day. But I got to tell you, their, their, their treatments weren't as modern as the Mayo Clinics are. Uh, they actually, the insignia, the medical insignia that you see today, uh, a snake entwined on a staff is Asclepius' rod. That's exactly where that insignia came from. Now, the medical treatment there at the medical center was, was uh, considered modern at the time, but let me tell you a little bit about it. The way they treated people in that day, and stop and think about who's behind all of this, was with snakes. Everywhere throughout the hospital, supposedly you could call it a hospital, non-poisonous snakes crawled all over the floors. And the main treatment when you were really sick was to lie in a bed of non-venomous snakes. Now, I would have just had to die because I wouldn't have laid in a bed of non-venomous snakes. But can't you see Satan's imprint on that? The great wily serpent who wants you to worship snakes because he is the ultimate snake. And all over this, you see this as a character of God's method of healing. What is God's method of healing? Let me ask you a question. I'll ask you that today because I don't think many of us really know this. What is God's method of healing? What is it? Is it Lafayette General? Is it Children's Hospital? Is it, what is God's method of healing? You know what it is? It is faith. It is faith. That is God's method of healing. I mean, medicine has its place, and certainly modern medicine is much better than the medicine in the days of Asclepius' temple, the days of Pergamos. But God's method of healing is faith. And his insignia, if he has an insignia, is a snake entwined on a staff, on a pole. You remember the story, don't you? The Israelites were out in the wilderness and God was bringing, giving them this manna that came down from heaven and fed them every day. And you know what? Instead of, I mean, how fantastic would that be? I mean, it wasn't Big Macs or any French fries or anything like that, but it was this manna that was really healthy for you. It was good for you. And it came down from heaven and it came down every day. And that's all they ate. 
And they got sick of the manna. And they began to complain against God. We're sick. Of, we told Moses, we're sick of this manna. We don't want to eat this manna anymore. We've had enough of this manna. We want something like we had back when we were in Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Why would you bring us out here to die, Moses? Well, that kind of ticked God off. And God did something to them that was horrific in my eyes. He sent poisonous snakes into the camp. And they lay on a bed, they laid on a bed of snakes, but those snakes were poisonous. And the snakes bit them, and they were dying by the thousands. And so they sent their leaders to Moses, and they said to Moses, Moses, we've sinned against God. You sure have. And God's mad at us. Will you please entreat God to stop what's going on? And God didn't take the snakes away. But what he told Moses to do, he told him to take a snake, a bronze snake, and twine it on a, on a bronze pole and have people look at that snake. That snake, that snake represented their sin, their sin of complaining against God. And he put that sin on that bronze pole, and the only way they could get cured of those snake bites were to look at that pole. What is that? That is nothing more than faith. Now, if you were bitten by a snake during that time period, and you said, I'm not going to look at that pole. That's stupid. I can't get healed by looking at that pole. You know what would have happened to you? You would have died. And that is a picture of faith. That is a picture of faith. That is a picture of the cross. Because remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3. He says, as, as the serpent was... as." The pole was lifted up, the serpent on the pole was lifted up in the wilderness, so much the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Because when we look at that cross, we see our sin. We see our murmuring, our complaining against God, our lack, our unbelief, and we see all of that, and by faith we believe, we look to that cross, and we're saved. And by his stripes, what does the Bible say? We are healed. And primarily, I think that's speaking of our spiritual healing, but it's also speaking of our physical healing. I mean, I believe that the first and foremost that we're healed by faith. I see a lot of blank faces looking at me right now because I think that's a last resort for a lot of people. I'm going to tell you right now, there's a lot of modern medicine that's really good, and I'm not putting down modern medicine. I've been a... I don't want to say a victim of modern medicine myself, but I've, I've, I've been the recipient of modern medicine myself. And all of, everybody in this room probably has, and there's some good things about modern medicine. But some of it, I'm going to tell you, is nothing more than a bed of snakes. And you better be real careful that you don't put medicine above, the, your faith in medicine above your faith in God. But when something is ailing me, the first thing that I do, I look to that cross, and I asked God to heal me by faith. And I've been healed several times by faith. Sometimes he won't heal me that way. And sometimes he does use medicine. But first and foremost, God wants us to have faith in him. Even when we're going to a doctor, he wants us to still put our faith in him for our healing. There's a passage over in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. And I don't... I'm not going to go into the whole story, but Asa was one of the greatest kings of all of Israel. And he, had, and he got an ailment in his feet, some kind of infection in his feet. And he died of that infection. And right there at, at his, as his epithet, this is what the Lord says. 
He said Asa died because he put his faith in positions and not in the Lord. So first and foremost, listen to me, we put our faith in the Lord. So here's back to the story here. Here's Satan, this wily serpent, and he sets up his headquarters in Pergamos, and he gives the people a God they can see. He gives them Caesar. He gives them the temple to Caesar. He gives them a God of great power. He gives them Zeus. He gives them the temple to Zeus. And he gives them the God of uh, debauchery, Bacchus. Bacchus was the God of debauchery who ratified their depraved behavior. And then he gives them a God to heal them. And that is uh, uh, Asclepius. And, And just think of how twisted things had become in that city that people would go and lie in a bed of snakes in order to be cured of their disease. That, all of those things reek of Satan. So here's this little church, and they're sitting at the very headquarters of Satan, and Satan attacks that church. And the first attack he brings upon that church is to kill their pastor, to kill Antipas. But, hey, we all know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Satan knows that too. And when, he killed, when they killed Antipas, Antipas, the only thing that happened at that point, the church grew bigger and it grew stronger. So Satan knows that at that point, he's got to use a different strategy, his main strategy. And that's to destroy the church from within. So look at verse number 14. Look at verse number 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. And every church but Smyrna Jesus had something against the believers. There was something they were doing wrong. Because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who, who taught Balak to put, stu- put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Look, Satan's greatest attack against the church His greatest attack against you and your family is not normally a frontal attack. It's attack from within. And that's what he's referring to here. When he talks about in verse number 14, he says that you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, what's he talking about there? You remember the story of Balak and Balaam. Balak wanted to defeat the Israelites, and before he went up against them, he wanted Balaam to curse the Israelites. And so he went up on the mountain, and he tried to curse the Israelites, and every time he tried to curse the Israelites, God put blessings in his mouth and he blessed the Israelites. And so he did that over and over again until he finally gave up and uh, uh, he was going back home and he decided, man, I really want to get this reward. They were going to make me a really important guy. They're going to give me lots of money. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to give him a strategy. I'm going to give Balak a strategy whereby which he can defeat the Israelites. And what was that strategy? The strategy was what what you need to do, Balak, is get the prettiest Midianite women that you can possibly find, bring them into the camps and, 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 and let them have sexual relations with the, with the Israelite men and uh, uh, seduce them into worshiping their idols. 
And that's exactly what happened. These Midianite women came into the camp and they, they married these Israelite men and they got them to worshiping Baal and, and all of these pagan gods. And God, and, and what happened, the wrath of God came upon Israel and God killed 24,000 Israeli men. He would have killed the rest if Phinehas hadn't uh, did what he did to stop what was going on. And so uh, this was exactly what was going on in the church in the days of Pergamos. What Satan had done, he was sending in people who enticed the people to worship Baal, to worship a different God from Jehovah God, and to get them to commit sexual immorality. Well, that could never happen to the modern church, right? Let me tell you what, that's happening right now. Whenever, whenever a church I don't care what they call themselves. They can be the, call themselves the most Christian church in the world. But whenever they make God different from the God of this Bible in any form or fashion, that is blasphemy and it is idolatry. And there are all sorts of liberal preachers who have infiltrated the church and they've talked people into believing somehow that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament and that there's just certain passages that, that you have to, to believe are true. You don't have to believe the entire word and what you end up doing is creating a false God and worshiping a false God. And Satan's using that attack very well today in the United States of America. Also, think about how sexual immorality has been brought into the church of America today, how we are ordaining in, in, in what used to be conservative denominations, we're ordaining homosexual pastors. I mean, we, one of the largest denominations, many of their priests are homosexuals. And God, Satan has brought all of this in in order to destroy the church from within. And he's doing a darn good job of it. But that wasn't the only attack that or method of attack that he was using. Look at verse number 15. He says, Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And listen to this carefully. Listen to these last four words. Which thing I hate. I hate it. The Lord says, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now you can read some commentaries and they'll tell you that was some cult way back then or something. That's not what that is at all. That, that is two words in the Greek. It's a compound word. You ought to be able to figure it out pretty easily. Nic Nicolation. There's two words there. You've heard of Nike, the largest sports manufacturer in the world. The Nike, what's Nike all about? Nike's about victory, power over. That's what the word Nike means. It means power over. Lation, what English word do we get from the Greek word lation? Laity. So it's power over the laity. Let me tell you what Satan's strategy is. His strategy was to cut the people off. It's his strategy today, too. From a direct relationship with God. You get that? He doesn't want you to have a direct relationship with God. He wants you to look to the pastor or to the priest or to some clergy member. That's what the Nicolaitans are. He's talking about the clergy who exercise power over the people. And there's a lot of clergy who do that. We're told in 1 Peter that we're, as pastors, we're not to lord over the people. We're to set examples to the people. 
We're to teach the people the word of God. But I'm not to lord over you. I'm not to be in an intermediary between you and God. The Bible is very clear in Hebrews. There is no intermediary between God and man except who? Jesus Christ. None. None whatsoever. So if Satan can get you to believe that there's a group of men or a group of women in certain denominations, they ordain women, who are more superior than you, more saintly than you, and somehow you go to these men or women to secure your forgiveness or to do your praying for you or to do your Bible study for you, then in effect what they've do, done has cut you off from a relationship with God. You don't need anyone to do your praying for you. Every one of us as saints of God are as born again believers, we are all saints of God. We have all have access to God. You don't need me to pray for you. You know, I have people all the time that come to me and say, Pastor, please pray for me about this situation I've got going on. I say, I'll pray with you. But m the most effective prayers aren't going to be my prayers. They're going to be your prayers. Look, Elijah didn't get a bunch of people to pray for him. He didn't get another man to pray for him when, when he called down fire on Mount Carmel. The, the, when he, when he uh, said it's not going to rain for three years, he asked the Lord for it not to rain for three years, and it didn't rain for three years. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And every one of you have been made, who are born again have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. And so you don't need anyone to pray for you. Now, you might ask some people to pray with you, but let me tell you what, God's not impressed by numbers of people praying. He's impressed by that one individual praying who truly knows the Lord, who's truly in a relationship with the Lord. And listen, if you think I'm in a better relationship with the Lord than you and maybe you want me to pray for you, let me tell you, my answer to that is you need to get in a better relationship with the Lord yourself because that's your problem. And that's where a lot of people have their problems because they're looking to the church to do all of their, their spiritual uh, biddings for them, and that's not right. God wants you in a strong relationship with him. He wants you praying to him. He wants you asking him for forgiveness. He wants you coming to him, not the clergy. He wants you doing your own Bible study. Yeah, look, I, God ordains teachers to teach you but if this is the only Bible study you get here on Sunday, you, if you're a born-again Christian, you're going to be a very weak Christian. God wants you to study the Word, to dig these things out for yourself. Look, I might be wrong. I'm not. <laughs> but just in case, you might want to check these things out yourself. Now listen to what he says in verse number 16. He says, repent, repent or else I will come to you. That's kind of scary stuff. Quickly, and I will fight against them. Now, let me tell you what he's saying right, right here. He said, I'm going to fight against you, and I'm going to fight against them. Those, I'm going to fight against you because you're letting this happen, and I'm going to fight against them because they're causing it to happen. With what? the sword of my mouth. In other words, you either end this attack from within or I will come to you and I'll end it. And there's going to be carnage. There's going to be carnage. 
these Nicolaitans uh, who are uh, coming to you and separating you from a relationship with me, I'm going to come against them. These false teachers who are bringing in idolatry and an immorality in the church, I'm going to fight against them. And I'm going to fight against you for letting it happen. And I'm going to fight against it by the word of my mouth, by this very word. We're fighting against that today through his word. He's talking about this Bible to some degree. But the word of the mouth means a lot more than just the Bible. The word of Jesus' mouth is the same word that spoke the universe into existence. It's the same word that if you will read about when we get to Revelation 19 about 10 years from now. When we get to Revelation chapter 19, it's the same word that destroys the armies of the earth by his word. We come riding in with him on these white horses. And, you know, we're, we're drinking a Coke and, and just enjoying it because we don't have to do any. We don't have to carry a gun or anything. I don't even take my Gluck with me. I mean, we, just, we, we ride in, and by his word, he destroys the armies of this world. Now, what do you think he can do a few believers and a few false teachers and a few Nicolaitans? What do you think he can do to them when he gets ready? By his word, he can destroy them. Let me tell you what. When you allow the clergy to become between you and God, when you allow yourself to engage in, in sexual immorality and idolatry, whose fault really is it? Is it the clergy's fault or is it your fault? It's your fault. And you're going to be accountable for that. You're responsible for your own faith. I'm responsible to, to, to inspire you to do the things that will grow your faith, but I can't grow it for you. Jesus won't grow it for you if you're not willing to take the time and spend with him. But if you are, there are great rewards. Look at the next verse, the last verse here. He who has an ear, look around. How many people in this room have ears? You don't, again, I said last week, if you don't have an ear, I'm not picking on you. But He who has an ear, how many people in this room have ears? All of you. So who's he talking to? All of you. And really he's talking spiritually here. So he who has a spiritual ear, he who's born again, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes Satan's strategies, his spirit, who, him who overcomes spiritual warfare, him who overcomes his doctrine of the Nicolaitans, him who overcomes immorality and idolatry, to him who overcomes, listen to what he says, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on that stone a new name written, which no one knows of him who receives it. You're going to have such a personal relationship with the Lord. He's going to give you a personal name between you and him. Like the name Ruth Gary gave me. I used to call Ruth Gary Roof, R-O-O-F, when she was about six or seven years old. And she would get really mad, and I would say, hey, Ruth, my name's not Ruth, it's Ruth. And she, I did that about two weeks. About the third week, I came to her, and I said, hey, Ruth. She says, okay, I'm Ruth, but you're Pastor Goof. 
So we had this personal thing going, this personal name. I imagine that might be the name written on my stone, <laughs> Pastor Goof. But listen what the promise is here. If you'll overcome these things, if you'll get into your own relationship with the Lord, if you won't allow idolatry to come into your life, let me tell you what, we've got the biggest idol in the world sitting in our homes in the form of that television set. I'm telling you right now, we're all guilty of it. Look, it's, that's okay to bow down to it every once in a while or sit down next to it. But if that's all you do, it, you're in trouble. You're in trouble spiritually. I mean, if we'll overcome these things, if we will look for the true God in the Bible and we won't create some kind of God in our mind who really doesn't exist, if we'll do some of those things, I will give you, the Lord says, some of the hidden manna. Some of the hidden manna. What's the manna he's talking about? Remember what Jesus said, John chapter 6. I am the manna that came down from heaven. When we're in a right relationship with the Lord, we receive the very life of Jesus Christ. And the more we're in the right relationship with the Lord, the more life we receive. The closer we get to him, the more we become like him, the more he lives through us. The more power we have over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when you're really close to him, he starts showing you things in this word. I was talking to somebody the other day about the word of God and how it speaks to you. And if you'll get in this word and you'll approach this word humbly and honestly and say, Lord, I'm looking for you and I want to find you in this word. Oh, you're going to find him. You're going to find him as almighty God. And he's going to speak to you. I mean, you can go just like this. Sometimes, not often. But you can be reading a passage, you can be reading a psalm, and all of a sudden it'll light up. It'll light up. Has that ever happened to you? If it hasn't happened to you, I'm not picking on you. I'm telling you why it's not happening. It's because you're not in a right relationship with the Lord. Because he wants to speak to you every bit as much as he wants to speak to anybody in this room. And if you'll take the time, he will speak to you in a very powerful way, and he will give you his life. You feed on him. You feed on him when you feed on anything else, and you get life. And, and too many of us are like the Israelites. We say, I'm sick of this manna. The church has said, for the most part across this nation, I'm sick of this manna. We're going to have to do something different in order to get people in here. Let me tell you what, if we're down to nobody in here, we're going to still be taken of the manna. We're going to take of the word of God because that's where you grow in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, he goes on and he says, and I will give him a white stone. A white stone. Let me tell you what he's talking about here. He's talking about a white stone in contrast to a black stone. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I was in a fraternity when I was in college. And whenever we brought a new member into that fraternity, we would vote on that new member. And each of us would have a white stone and we would have a black stone. And they would send a box around and you would drop the white stone in the box. If you wanted the guy to be in the fraternity, you would drop the black stone in the back. We, you heard of being blackballed? We would drop the black stone in the box if you didn't want this guy in the fraternity. And that way nobody knew who blackballed him. 
And, and so if you open up the box and it was all white balls, guess what? The guy was in the fraternity. If there was one black ball in there, he wasn't in the fraternity. And so what Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a white stone. I'm going to drop a white stone into the box. There's not going to be any black in there whatsoever. I'm going to make you totally pure, and I'm going to make you totally holy, and you're going to become part of the fraternity, the greatest fraternity in the world, the church of Jesus Christ. You will live forever. You will serve me forever in glory. You will live for heaven forever because you've received a white stone. And on that white stone, I'm going to write a new name for you. Remember how Jacob, his name was Hill Catcher, and then he wrestled with God all night, and he became, I think he finally reached a point where he had true faith, and God gave him a new name, and his name was Israel, Prince with God. You can have a name like that. Prince with God, daughter of God. Pastor Goof. You're going you're gonna to get a new name, and it's going to be a precious name, a wonderful name. So, here was this little church on the very front lines of the battle. You couldn't be anymore on the front lines than anywhere on the front lines. They were on, under heavy attack from the outside. They were being persecuted from the outside. The pastor had been killed. And they were under attack from the inside. And they were in great, let me put it this way, grave danger. Grave danger. Grave danger of losing their souls. Grave danger of dying if they kept their souls. But think of the opportunity. Think of the opportunity that they had there in Pergamos. Because I'm, my Bible says that Jesus said that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of God. And this little church of Pergamos, if it stayed strong, the gates of hell, they could have knocked the very gates of hell down if they had chosen to do so. That's the kind of power that they could have had. But at some point, they went off the map. They're gone today. There's no such thing as a church in Pergamos. That is all that area is modern Turkey is under the rule of Islam. So where is Satan's headquarters today? Wonder where it is today. Lafayette, Louisiana? I don't think so. I don't think it's in Asia any longer. Because like I said, that's pretty much been turned over to Satan. It's not in the Far East or in Africa because that's all that area has been given over to satanic cults, all sorts of different satanic cults. There's, there's some works going on. I'm not saying there's not some work going on, but there's not much going on. It's, his headquarters certainly aren't in Europe. I've had the privilege to go to Europe the last couple of years, and I've got to tell you, there's not a darker place on this earth. In Europe. I mean, I love the beautiful buildings, I love the, the scenery, all that kind of stuff, but that is a dark, dark place. 
you asked Mark and Martina Wanker who have been in Spain for, for uh, I guess, the last 10, 15 years, one, maybe one convert. That's a dark place. Satan's not there. He's not headquartered there. He doesn't need to be headquartered there. Uh, what about the Middle East? Well, he's not in Israel. I don't believe he's in Israel. Thank God would let him in Israel yet. But he's certainly not in the Middle East because a demonic religion pretty much rules that land. So he doesn't need to be there. I'm certainly directing orders there, but he's not there. So where is he? Let me tell you where I believe he is. And this is my opinion. Don't tell me. He's misquoting the Bible. I'm not trying to quote the Bible here, but I'm going to give you my opinion. I believe he is headquartered right here in the United States of America. Why? Why would he be headquartered here? Because for the last three centuries, we've been a bastion of Judeo-Christian beliefs. This country has been the greatest missionary country ever on the face of this earth. And this is the place where the battle over good and evil rages the hottest as far as I'm concerned right now. And I believe he's here somewhere. Where exactly is Satan located? Well, let me give you some possibilities. Los Angeles, Hollywood, does that make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Because Hollywood is the greatest exporter of immorality and idolatry on, on this earth. Certainly makes sense that he's telling them what to do there. What about New York City? That would seem logical. I mean, it's the mecca of greed and humanism. I mean, maybe New York City. Or maybe quite possibly, quite possibly, he's headquartered in Washington, D.C. I was listening, and I don't think it was an accident, I was listening to the, uh, a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in Hawaii. I hate those guys. But he was talking about this very passage that we're looking at today, and Lord really perked my interest. And he has it gives a prophecy report, and he was talking about this very passage about per, about Pergamus and how Satan's headquarters were located in Pergamus. And he says he believes beyond a shadow of a doubt that Satan's headquarters is somewhere in another dimension in Washington, D.C. And the reason he believes that is the third strategy that he attacks with that from within that I haven't mentioned, and that is to divide. Because united we stand, divided we fall. And there has never been more division in the United States of America than there is right now. The United States of America was not as divided during the Civil War as it is now. 
and it is divided among two lines or among a line and now on the one side of that line are people who believe this word they believe in God they want to see morality and righteousness rule in this country and then there's another side on the other side and and they want to bring this country down morally and they want to put God totally out of our culture and in his mind and in my mind too Satan is winning this battle. He's winning this battle. And just like the church at Pergamos, we're in grave danger in the United States of America. Grave danger. The rest of the world he's conquered, and he's trying to conquer us now. And we're on the precipice of going over the cliff and becoming just as dark as Europe. But with that grave danger comes great opportunity. You're fighting a battle if you want to get in the fray that's right in the midst of Satan's territory. Right there. We're right in his headquarters. It's somewhere here. I have no little doubt that it's not somewhere here in the United States, that it is somewhere here in the United States. And one day, unless there's some kind of great revival. And, I, and I, we've studied the Minor Prophets, and, 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 and I think when you go through the Minor Prophets, one of the lessons you learn, revival's a choice. And people are now choosing evil more and more than ever. We are living in a, just a, exponentially, uh, uh, evil is growing exponentially in the United States of America today. It's really, really sad what's happening. And I believe, I hate to sound like a pessimist, but I believe we're just an election or two elections away from going over that cliff. And you're going to see, if you're going to stand for the faith and you're going to stand for the name of Christ, you're going to be just like this little church at Pergamos. Because this is, the, this is the last stand. Where's everybody's missiles pointed at? Who do they all want to destroy? pointed at us and at Israel. Satan wants to destroy the United States of America, and I believe he's on the verge of doing that. When he does, he's going to pick up his headquarters, he's going to move to Rome, and he's going to set up his throne there. He's going to live in the Antichrist. The Antichrist is Satan incarnate. And it's going to look like he's won. Cheer up. Your redemption draweth nigh. And he might win a few battles, but he's going to lose the war. The king of kings and the lord of lords is on his way back soon. Hopefully on my birthday, September the 23rd. So many people are predicting that. But we don't have long. My encouragement to you today is I finish up. If you're not saved, you better get saved. Let today be the day of your salvation. You better quit putting it off. You don't know when all of this is going to go down. You don't know when it's going to be too late. You get saved. For no, if, if, if you're the most selfish person in the world if you don't get saved if you have children. 
Because you, you, know, you realize what you're doing. They're going to go, they're going to follow you. Whenever in the Bible you see a, a household, a person in the household gets saved, the whole household gets saved. They're going to follow you. The whole household goes to hell. One person, the, house, the head of the household goes to hell. The whole household goes to hell. And how selfish would that be on your part if you're a parent here and you're not saved? to lead your children straight into hell. So get saved if you're not saved. If you are saved, get into the fray. There are great opportunities today to fight, to fight this battle against evil. Don't just sit back and be a victim. Stand up. Stand up and, and fight for good. Stand on the name of Jesus Christ. Stand on your faith. And that comes with a close relationship with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, even though there's some discouraging things here, Lord, we know in the end you win. We know that, that, that Satan is just a puppet in your hands. By your word, you can destroy him. One day you're going to throw him into the bottomless pit, and everyone who follows him, you're going to throw them there with him. Lord, so we know the end of the story. But Lord, we're living in the last days. We're living in the heat of the battle. Lord, some of us have run from that battle as far as we can get. We've run from your word because it cuts and it hurts. But Lord, help us to become the kind of believers that you want us to be. Help us to be close to you in these last days. Lord, show us ways where we can serve you. Show us ways in our own homes, in our own jobs, and wherever you've placed us to to be a mighty witness on, uh, for your kingdom. Lord, we want to be in the fray. We want to win some battles. We ask you to give us that power. We ask that in Christ's name.